So we're reading from Galatians chapter 1 and uh, reading from verse 6 through to verse 12, where Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if I, if we, or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God, or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. And may God add a May God bless the reading from his precious word this morning. So here again, we're looking into the Galatian epistle, and uh, we're looking at the letter that Paul writes to the churches in the region of Galatia. Those were the churches of Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derb. And uh, you find Paul's missionary journey, his first missionary journey there in Acts chapter 13. From verse 13 through to chapter 14, you read his, uh, his contact, his involvement there, his initial contact and involvement with the churches in Galatia. And uh, now Paul is writing this letter to them sometime afterwards, concerned that uh, having received the gospel and having received it with joy and having received it with signs following the preaching of the word, uh, now they are beginning to uh, become uh, not confident with the gospel. They're beginning to listen to other teachings and particularly the teachings of a group of people who are described as Judaizers, not in scripture, but the Bible commentators generally, we describe these people as Judaizers. They were Jews. Be accepting Jesus Christ as saviour and yet they were saying that uh, Jesus was not enough uh, and that in order to be saved you had to keep the Jewish law, you had to do your part as it were. It was a case of Jesus plus me uh, in order to be saved. You had to be circumcised etc etc and you had to keep the Jewish law. So this was a very dangerous teaching and Paul is writing to the Galatians and uh, in some astonishment at the fact that they have turned aside so readily, so easily uh, to listening to these teachers. And he's writing to them in dismay, but also to correct the wrong teaching and the confusion that these people are are now in. And uh, the Judaizers, as we've been reading in the uh, last couple of uh, uh, messages, we've we've realised that the Judaizers were... Um, trying to bring down Paul's reputation and trying to 
make out that he was uh, not a true apostle and uh, that in fact he was a uh, someone who was uh, trying to gain popularity by pleasing men you remember the last study if you've been able to join us he answers a criticism of uh, those who are accusing of uh, pleasing men pleasing men with a, a gospel of salvation through grace alone through faith a gospel they see as something that is easier something that is popular something that is gaining paul uh, a certain uh, following and uh, they accuse him as being a, a man pleaser rather than someone who is obeying the commands of god now paul answers that in two ways firstly by pronouncing judgment upon anyone who does not preach the true gospel so in a sense if he wasn't preaching the gospel he would be condemning himself because he says in those uh, earlier verses there that uh, anybody that does not preach the the true gospel there uh, is to be condemned but he also uh, answers it by uh, uh, making clear that the gospel that he preached actually far from being a, a man-pleasing gospel it actually alienates him from both the Jews and from the Gentiles it alienates uh, the Jews because it is a gospel that uh, does not include works of the law and the Jews were infatuated and uh, taken up with the Jewish customs and laws and rituals it did not please them to uh, hear of a gospel that was for, that was through uh, grace alone but also it didn't uh, it didn't please the Gentiles either because it was a gospel that insulted the intellect if you like and the and, and the status of uh, of, of um, people uh, they were proud and uh, they didn't like to be told that they were sinners in need of a savior that they couldn't save themselves it was the the offense of the cross as the apostle paul describes it and so neither the jews nor the gentiles would be pleased naturally speaking with this gospel it was not a a, a gospel that was a a man-pleasing gospel at all but now paul goes on from verse 11 and actually goes on from verse 11 to verse 24 here but we're only looking at verse 11 and 12 today but goes on from verse 11 to 24 to substantiate his claim that this is the true gospel that he has been called to preach so there's a whole section here that he's going to be describing and uh, pointing out this is a the true gospel that he's been called to preach now the galatian epistle incidentally is can be quite easily and readily divided up into into three sections and um, the gospel was never this um, uh, epistle was never divided up into chapters originally but it it is helpful to uh, the way that it's been divided up into chapters in the bible because chapter one and two where paul looks at the origins of the gospel so he's he's talking about how he came to faith and how he uh, came into the uh, and how his association with the the other disciples there from uh, chapter one and two in chapter three and four paul talks about how the gospel is vindicated in the old testament so he he shows how the the old testament has always been a gospel of salvation by grace alone through faith and then uh, in the last two chapters chapter five and six he he applies the gospel of how the gospel brings true liberty to those who embrace jesus christ and who 
glory in the cross. So that's how the, the gospel is, this um, epistle is uh, uh, quite easily divided up. Now, in verse 11 here, verse 11, the verse, uh, one of the verses we're looking at uh, this morning, Paul says here, he says, I want you to know, brethren. I want you to know, brethren. Now, the, the Greek word that he uses here is the Greek word nerissa. There's actually a G on the beginning there, but, it's a, uh, but we don't pronounce that. So it's Greek, uh, the Greek word nerissa, and it means to, it's to make known with certainty or to certify. It's a very, it's a very strong term, to make known with certainty or to certify. So Paul is really saying to the Galatian church and to you and to I today, he's saying, I want to, I want to certify that this gospel that I preach is not something that man made up very, very strong. He wants them to know. He wants them to be certain. Now, I wonder how important that statement was to the Galatian believers some 2,000 years ago. And I wonder how important it is to you and to me today. Paul believes it was a, a very important, vitally important, that they should be certain, that they should know for certain, that they should be absolutely confident in the gospel that he was preaching to them. There is, there is of course, a certain apathy today that we've, we've talked about, a certain apathy amongst people as to the importance of the gospel and to the significance of truth. That people say today, well, what is truth? And people say that uh, truth is almost dependent on the individual. What you consider to be truth is truth. There are absolutes today. And people are, are questioning what is truth to some people. The, the, the sermon, the, the message, the sermon is, is irrelevant today. It, it's something to be endured with one eye on the clock, if you like. Um, and to other people, it's a ritual. It, it's something that we do. It's something that we, we do in order to, uh, as a means of grace, perhaps, or certainly as a means of blessing, you know, um, People say, oh, well, I went to church, you know, as if somehow just going to church was a, a means of blessing. You say, well, what, what was said in church? What was the, the message about? What did you, you get? Did you hear the voice of Jesus for the ministry of the word? They say, oh, no. They said, but we, we went to church. That, that's the important thing. We, we sat down in a, a seat. We, we attended church. We were seen to be there. We we shook hands with the pastor at the end of the, the service. That's the done bit, if you like. It's all done and dusted. The message itself is irrelevant. Now, there were two great dangers posed in this heresy. The Judaizers were bringing, and I mentioned it at the, the very beginning of this study, is a reason why we would study this and um, this epistle, why it was so important. There were two main dangers that the teaching of the Judaizers, first of all, would rob people of salvation, rob non Christians of salvation. 
people who were coming to find Jesus, people who wanted to be saved, they would come and if they heard the message of the Judaizers, it would, it would turn them away, it would cause them to be uh, misguided and, and, and not put their trust fully in Jesus Christ as, as Saviour and Lord. So for many people it would, be, uh, it, it would turn them away and turn them into a wrong direction. It was a, a cult teaching occult teaching that was the teaching of the judaizers and it, it has to be understood as that that the, the cults do not save people they do not point to jesus they do not show jesus upon the cross as the absolute uh, answer to sin and sickness and searching they don't do that and this is what the, the judaizers were trying to teach in the so-called the name of christianity that was the first great danger but the the second danger the second danger was that it would rob Christians of the certainty and the joy of salvation. Uh, it didn't mean that they were still saved. If you were saved, you were, you were saved. They, they would always be saved as blood-bought believers who had accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord, but they were in danger of losing the joy of their salvation and the certainty and the assurance of their salvation. Now, this is surely a, a, a great problem in, in churches and amongst Christians today. Many people have lost the joy of their salvation. They've lost the, the certainty and the assurance, and they're not confident like they used to be because they've been listening to, to, to people and they've been listening to certain teachings and gradually, gradually their, their confidence in Jesus has been eroded. And, and the, the idea of that glorious final destination is, is almost a uh, um, shadow, shadowy thing now because they, they've lost that confidence. They've lost that assurance that Paul wants the Galatians to know and wants you and I to know. You know, Satan can do nothing to rob a believer of salvation, but he can render us useless and apathetic in respect to Christian service. And this is really important. Satan's first encounter with Eve was to rob her of confidence in God. You remember in the Garden of Eden, in, in, in the book of Genesis, we find him coming along and there was Eve quite confident and quite happy and, and quite secure in God. And yet Satan comes and he whispers in her ear and he says, has God said, are you sure? Are you certain? And she begins to lose that assurance she loses that certainty. And because of that, she loses all the wonderful, glorious uh, plan that God has for her in the Garden of Eden. She loses that by listening to that voice. Did God really say that? Are you sure? Jesus said, take up your cross and, and follow me to you and I as Christians today. It's a big ask, let's face it, in a world in which we live and in the early church, right down to the ages, it's a big ask. Take up your cross and follow me, but what if I'm not sure? 
what if I'm not certain? What about if all these other religions in the world? What about all these other teachings? What about all these, these cult teachings within Christianity that tell me this and tell me that? And what about all these books that uh, sap my confidence? And, uh, and, and what, about the, um, what about science? And what about evolution? And what about all these, these other ideas that are floating around? What about all these philosophies that are floating around? How can I commit to service for Christ? How can I sacrifice for Jesus? How can I give up my life, if you like, and, and walk that narrow way of the cross and, and carry that cross as Jesus calls me to carry unless I am sure, unless I am certain? Why shouldn't I engage in sin? Why shouldn't I engage in all the temporary pleasures of this life if I'm hearing a voice in my ear? saying to me has god said because that's exactly what the teaching of the judaizers was doing it was bringing that voice of satan into their minds saying has god said can you be confident is would you really want to sacrifice all of this if you're not confident you know being sure it is it, not an impossible dream it's not an impossible dream john also confirms in 1 John 1, verses 13, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know, that you may know that you have eternal life. It's not that you may hope that you have eternal life, or you may think that you have eternal life, that you may know that you have eternal life, that you might walk with confidence, that you might walk with assurance, that you might see gl the glory of heaven ahead of you. And you might see the, 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 the potential of your life as you follow Jesus Christ. This is what the, the Apostle John is saying. But confidence does require diligence. It does require us to apply the word of God. And that's what the Apostle Paul is encouraging the Galatians to do here. And this is what he does in this Galatian epistle. He applies the word of God from now on in a way that will give the Galatians confidence once again, that will restore their assurance, that will restore their joy, that will enable them to live through their lives in service for Christ and be all that Jesus wanted them to be, to know that the sacrifice that they were making was worth it because they were confident and they were sure and they knew who they were and they knew who their saviour was. How important that was. You see, the problem with the Galatians was that although Paul had come and preached to them the gospel, they had not retained the teaching that he had given them. They had uh, not held on to that teaching and therefore they had become they have become uh, victims of these Judaizers. The Ephesian epistle, chapter 4, the, in verse 11, the apostle Paul talking to the Ephesians there, he says, Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Then he goes on in verse 14 there to say, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Paul was saying here, listen to the pastors, 
listen to the teachers, listen to the teaching, listen to the sermons that are, that are, 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 are proclaimed by, 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 by good men in order that you may not be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. This was the Apostle Paul. This was a heart, if you like, of the pastor teacher saying, listen, and you will learn. And as you learn, and as you grasp these truths, you will become confident and you will be sure and you will remain sure. And you will be joyful and happy in your Christian lives. Now, Paul continues here. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preach was not something made up. It was not something made up. Now, Paul lived in a society very similar to our own. And I often am bemused by, the, by, by people saying, you know, Paul did, doesn't know what's going on today. He, his society was very different. It wasn't very different at all from our society. There were all sorts of stuff going on there in, the, in his day, exactly the same stuff that's going on in, in our day. He, he was surrounded by all sorts of cults, all sorts of different religions, all sorts of different beliefs. He was surrounded by Greek mythology. He was surrounded by emperor worship. He was surrounded by fertility cults and magic cults and a variety of philosophical and religious beliefs. But Paul insists here, he said that the gospel of Jesus Christ is different from any of these. You may, you may be confused by all these different cults and all these different beliefs and all these different voices, he says, but the gospel of Jesus Christ is different from any of these. It's not like those. Some people, they, they love religion, and let's face it, you find people and they, they love religion, and, and they love the, 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 the rituals and the rules and, and all of that, you know, and the Jews were that, and there are, there are other groups of people in other religions who enjoy the rules and the rituals and all of that. There are others who absolutely hate uh, any, any of that. Others who are, are weary of the endless demands and sacrifices that, that, that are, are demanded in, in these various religions. But the, the gospel is unique. And the gospel is unique because it does not contain an element of human action. But it is wholly the gift of God. And as we said earlier, all the other religions of the world Every other religion demands something of man. It allows man to keep his dignity. It doesn't say you are a lost cause without Christ. It doesn't say you are lost and in need of a savior. It says you can, you can save yourself. You can save yourself. Here are the rituals. Here are the rules. Here are the things you need to do. You can save yourself. Christianity says you can't do anything. You, you're actually an alien. You're actually someone who, who doesn't, doesn't want God. You're actually a, a, a rebel against God, naturally speaking. You don't want anything to do with God. And unless God draws you, you can't come. Unless God saves you, you can't be saved. That is not anything like any of the other religions of this world. The book of Ecclesiastes in chapter 3 and verse 11 says this, He, that is God, he has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Let me read that again. Ecclesiastes 3.11. It, it says, he, that is God, has made everything beautiful in its time. He has set eternity in the human heart. You see, from the beginning of scripture, we find people 
creating their own religions because they have a God-shaped emptiness in their lives. Everybody has that. Everybody has a God-shaped emptiness and you either fill it with religion or you, you fill it with all sorts of other stuff trying to, trying to fill that gap or you come to Christ and get that gap fully, fully met and fully fully satisfied. The thing with, with the God-shaped gap in your life is it is so big that there's nothing other than God can truly fill it. But people have been trying down through the ages to, to fill that gap with religion. So they built shrines and they make gods and they've created religions to meet this need that they have within their heart. And it's often religion of picking and choosing it's often a religion of what suits me, what religious views suit me. Not necessarily based on truth, but based on what satisfies me or what is convenient for me. You know, in the, in the Old Testament, we see time and time again, people making gods, making images and putting them on their, their mantelpieces or in their homes. And they, they put them up there and they, they blame the gods if things don't go right. And they, they thank the gods if things go wrong. But it's convenient because it's a god on the mantelpiece, if you like. And, uh, you know, that god doesn't demand anything from you. He's just there to kind of help fill that gap. And that's what a lot of people have today. We almost have a, 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 a sort of religion of uh, mix and match today. You know, where people, you talk to people and they say, well, you know, I, I like a bit of Buddhism and uh, I, I like some of the things of Christianity, but I, I like a little bit of, you know, some of the other religions of the world. I like some of the Greek philosophy. I, I like this, I like that. I'm going to pick a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of, of something else. And I'm going to create for myself a religion that suits me and makes me feel comfortable and makes me feel happy. You say, well, is that truth? They say, well, it's truth to me. It's truth to me. It's what suits me. It makes me happy. Various elements, all to make up their own, their own religious system. Paul says, I hear, I said, I did not receive this gospel from man, nor was I taught it. I did not receive this gospel from any man, nor was I taught it. Paul says, this gospel that I am presenting to you was not passed down as a tradition or as a teaching from others. Now, at the time of Christ, the Old Testament scriptures were obscured by ancestral teaching of the religious leaders. It was commonly known as the Halakha, and this collection of Torah interpretations became fenced around God's law. And over a period of several hundred years, it became a huge collection of rules that surrounded the word of God, the pure word of God, and it, it, it made the word of God hard to see amidst all these rules and regulations. Jesus, as I mentioned last week, he criticized these rules, these regulations, these traditions of the elders. In Matthew's gospel, chapter 7, we, we read uh, that he condemns that of, of, of teaching as doctrines, as precepts of men. 
So in Paul's day, you had the Bible, but you around the scriptures, you had all this, these traditions, all these teachings, all these rules that had made up, were made up by the rabbis. And the students would learn all these traditions and all these rules, and it obscured from them the word of God. And the more burdensome the traditions became, the more zealous the Jews observed them. Now the Bible says there that Paul loved these traditions. His family was steeped in religions, religion and in Judaism. He felt comfortable. He felt safe. He enjoyed the reassuring nods and the approval from others. These were the, this, is, this is how Paul was brought up. These, this is what he was taught. These were the traditions that he was taught. And you know, sadly, many people today gravitate to comfortable and familiar traditions. Traditions in church life that often obscure the true message of the gospel. Elements of church life that have little to do with the gospel, songs that are superficial, theology hidden in emotional language, and the true message of repentance and faith and commitment to Christ obscured by these traditions, even the traditions in the churches today. So Paul didn't learn the gospel through his teach through the teachings of others because it was obscured by the traditions of his fathers. If you look at the Jewish student, they would learn, for example, Isaiah's prophecy off by heart. They would learn Isaiah 53 off by heart. And yet, even as they memorized it, and even as they recited it, they were not able to see the Messiah, the suffering Messiah dying in the place of mankind. That's how obscured, that's how obscured the, the gospel was through the traditions of the elders, the leaders of that day. Now Paul makes a second point here. He says, nor was I taught it. So I did not receive it from any man. He says, nor was I taught it. Yet in the life of the Apostle Paul, we find that as a Pharisee, he boasted of being taught by the finest and the best. He grew up in Jerusalem. He grew up from the age of about 14 in the school of the great Gamaliel, the grandson of the founder of the house of Hillel. Hillel, the great, the, uh, the great uh, teacher, Gamaliel, his grandson, taking on the the learning and the teaching and passing it on now to another generation. Gamaliel was president of the Sanhedrin of the of Jewish High Council. He held the title of Rabban. It was far higher than Rabbi. Rabbi is my teacher, if you like, but Rabban is our teacher, our teacher. He was the, the one who taught everybody. He had that reputation. He held, he commanded unquestionable respect. And it's interesting, we find, uh, we find Gamaliel in Acts chapter 5 here. 
Um, if you don't need to turn to it from verse 34, we read of Gamaliel and he actually defends the, uh, the apostles and saves them from death, in fact, in Acts chapter 5. We read that the apostles have been brought before the Sanhedrin and uh, they're in real trouble. But we read, but a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honoured by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside. That is the apostles put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin. He said, men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thordis appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed. All his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men, and you will find yourselves fighting against God. That was Gamaliel. He was a wise man. He was a wise man. And it was a wise intervention that saved the apostles. Yet as far as we're aware, he remained undecided as to who Jesus was. There was some church tradition that said that he might have become a Christian in later life, but that's church tradition. It's not actually there in the scripture. I'd like to think that was the case, but uh, we just don't know that for sure. But in Galileo's school, the liberal theology of Hillel, and uh, Jesus came into contact with that, for example, on one occasion where people asked him about divorce, and the school of Hillel uh, taught that you could divorce your wife if she burnt your cakes or if, you, if she uh, upset you in any way. You didn't have to have a really good reason. And Jesus criticized that and condemned that and said, you know, you, you can't divorce apart from, uh, apart from uh, adultery. So he, 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 he condemned that sort of teaching. But, but that was the liberal school of, of, of Hillel. And that was, that was taught by, by Gamaliel. Um, and, and Gamaliel was the final authority in matters of faith. You know, what Gamaliel said went, it was a bit like the Pope, if you like. You know, that what, what does Rabban say? What does our teacher say about this? And that's what they were taught. That's how they were taught. They were taught to take the interpretations of the, the great scholar and to accept that as gospel, if you like. But on, the, but on the Damascus Road, of course, Paul came into contact with Jesus. He, he came, he was confronted by the living saviour and turned from his devotion to Gamaliel to devotion to Christ. Jesus, that the master teacher who did not rely upon, did not go to the teachings of the elders, but said, what is written? What is written? Jesus always does that time and time and time again. He says, it is written. He never went to the traditions of the teachers. He went straight back to the word of God. And he said, this is, this is it. This is what you need to listen to. Not the traditions of the elders. This is the word of God. This is what you need to listen to. Now, if we consider again Paul's own testimony here, we note that um, Paul came from Tarsus, which was no mean city. That's the way he describes it. It was, 
indeed known in city. It was a great city at the time of the Apostle Paul. In fact, it might be described as a university city. It was steeped in Greek uh, culture. It was a it was a, a city where a learning was very much at the uh, uh, at the top of the list as far as priorities in that city. Now, Paul spoke fluent Greek. He spoke fluent Hebrew. He spoke fluent Aramaic. His Orthodox family would have shielded him from Greek culture in his youth because, of, as I said, from the age of 14, he went to Jerusalem and learnt under the great Gamaliel. But even there, there was an understanding of Greek culture. And over time, Paul developed an understanding and he, he was a learned man. He knew what Greek culture he know all uh, about Greek culture, but it, it is it is clear that it never affected him as a a follower of, of Jesus. And he, he, he never took on the prevailing trends of the of the Greek culture. We we find, for example, in Acts chapter seventeen and verse eighteen, there uh, the the Bible there describing the apostle Paul's discussion with Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. He knew he knew how to argue from that position. He knew all about those teachings, but he was not affected by those teachings, by those ideas. Now, now the critics. The reason I emphasise that to you this morning is that. There are critics who will suggest that Christianity has been influenced by Greek culture. They say, well, if Paul wasn't influenced by, by, by his Jewish teaching, he was certainly influenced by his, his Greek upbringing or by the teachings of, of the Greeks. And that's what they say. They, they suggest, some people say that he was influenced by Greek, Greek cultures, citing, for example, Neoplatonic Logos philosophy, the, the conception of the of the eternal word that became flesh and the, the Greek idea of salvation uh, as being mirrored in the legends of Hercules and, and Zeus. I'm not going to go into that to, today. I just want you to be generally aware that that is one of the criticisms that is labelled against Christianity amongst many, many others. And you will find it, particularly if you go to university, if you're in higher education, you will hear these sort of things. Oh, you know, Christianity was influenced by the, the Greeks, it was influenced by, by uh, other, other people. And Paul is saying quite clearly here in this uh, passage in the Galatian epistle, he said, I wasn't influenced by, by any of that. People of Paul's day may, may have actually um, uh, seen similarities between uh, Christianity and their and their Greek beliefs. They may have even incorporated elements of Christianity into their own belief systems. There were all sorts of, of confused ideas in, in that day. So the question was, was Paul's gospel influenced by Greek mythology, by any of this? The, the, um, the Bible commentator, F.F. F. Bruce, many of you will have heard of him. He's a, he's a great Bible commentator. I, I've just got a quote here, which I think is sort of really, really helpful I, I, from a, a book called Paul, the Apostle of the Free Spirit. He says here uh, in that book, he says, the knowledge of Greek literature and thought that his, that is Paul's letters attest, was part of the common stock of education, of educated people in the Hellenistic world of that day. It bespeaks no formal instructions by his Jewish upbringing and then submission 
So, sorry, um, it bespeaks no formal instruction uh, received from Greek teachers. The direction of his, that is Paul's faith and life was now too firmly fixed, first by his Jewish upbringing and then by his submission to Jesus as Lord. For Hellenism to exercise a decisive influence on his mind. We can recognize in his writings concepts and expressions drawn particularly from popular stoicism which were in the air at the time and which he freely presses into service in the Christian context. But while he preached the gospel to the Hellenes it was not Hellenized gospel that he preached. His proclamation of deliverance and new life through Christ crucified brought his gospel into basic conflict with accepted standards of Hellenistic value and gave it a quality of folly. So that was the effort of Bruce pointing out that although Paul was brought up understanding and, and knowing much of the Hellenistic um, uh, teachings and ideas, he, he, his foundation as a Jew and his belief in Jesus Christ um, protected him or, or, or certainly made clear to him that there was nothing that the Greek philosophies or teachings had to offer. And indeed, as we've said already, the whole idea of Christianity being accepted by a Greek culture who gloried in, in, in self-expression and, uh, 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 and in man being able to save himself, it, it, uh, the, the gospel was folly. Uh, as we read in the Corinthian epistle, that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So finally, I just want to point out, Paul says at the end of this in verse 12 here, he says, I received it by revelation. He says, I want you to know, brothers, the gospel I preach was not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. And that's another work, word that we will look into uh, next time, hopefully. Apocalypto, a Greek word. It means to uncover that which was previously hidden. The apostles, all of them, had a unique ministry of and responsibility of completing the New Testament, of revealing that which had been covered, uncovering the gospel, if you like, from the Old Testament. It always there. It was always God's plan, always God's purpose. God never changed anything. But the, in the New Testament, we find the apostles uncovering that which was hidden, showing the gospel, showing the gospel from the Old Testament. And Paul does that so superbly under the anointing of the Holy Spirit here in this Galatian epistle. Second Timothy 3.16, he says, All scripture is God-breathed. It is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. My dear brother, my dear sister, this morning, are you sure? Are you confident? Do you know that this is a truth? Do you know that this is the gospel? That it hasn't been influenced, it hasn't been tainted, that it hasn't been taken apart and put together by 
somebody else, but this is the word of God has been handed down from eternity. That's always been in the plan of God, always been in the mind of God, always been in a loving heart of God to save a broken, dying world, to bring people to faith, to bring people to salvation, to bring people to heaven, not by works, but through his son, through the blood of Jesus, through the cross, through substitutionary atonement, whereby we repent of our sins, receive Christ as Savior. The blood cleanses us from our sin. The righteousness of Jesus is attributed to us and we are fit for heaven. May God give us that assurance. May God enable us to live in that assurance that no sacrifice, as C.T. Studd said, no sacrifice will be too great for me. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice will be too great for me to make for him. May God bless his word to our hearts. Let's just pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. We live in a world of such uncertainty. We live amongst people who are so uncertain. We look around as we see Christians who are so uncertain. That even their witness is so limited because of their own uncertainty as to the truth their own confidence in the gospel. Help us to be a people who are confident. Help us to be a people who are sure. Help us to be a people who can show that assurance and that joy in our lives that others may recognize that you can be sure, that you can be certain, that you can live a joyful life, that you can sacrifice knowing that it's all worth it. Oh God, grant us that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.